Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. About It's helpful for followers of Jesus to remember that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And if there are places in the world where freedom is not yet the reality, it means that there is still space for the Spirit of the Lord to advance. And it is the privilege and the calling and the responsibility of the people of God to usher in and invite the Spirit of the Lord to bring freedom wherever we see that it's lacking. And so thank you for being here to celebrate with us. My goodness. Yeah. You know, I was incredibly, incredibly fortunate. And I know this is not everybody's story, but as I think about Father's Day, I was incredibly fortunate to grow up in a family where both of my parents took faith seriously. Church participation and service to other people together, those were a given in my family growing up. We did not hardly ever miss a church service if, we, if it was at all possible for us to be there. And I'm so grateful for all of the richness that that added to my life, but I know for a fact, I know for a fact that even more than all the church involvement and participation and all the attendance and all of that kind of thing, it was the life of faith that I saw my parents living out at home that made the biggest impact on me and my spirit. In fact, as I was thinking about Father's Day approaching, I had a memory. I'm really echoey up here if somebody in the sound booth can touch a button there. I don't know what it needs, but uh, I had a memory about growing up and about the effort that my parents and and in one case particularly my dad made to help me become familiar with the stories of scripture my dad worked in construction in a in a chemical plant for most of my growing up years down in the hot south texas sun and i know that every day as he came home from work he was tired i mean worn out now that i'm you know old enough to be a dad myself i I'm aware of how fatigued he probably was, but I can remember that when I was about five years old, after dinner time on weeknights, my dad got into a rhythm, a, a, a habit of sitting us down, sitting me down on the couch, and we would read through a story from Scripture together. And to help me to internalize and be able to visualize that story, my dad had gone out and bought this spiral-bound uh, sketch pad and some really colorful markers, and we would draw a picture of the story that we had read, and we would talk together about what that story meant. And I got to tell you, it's been almost 40 years since that happened, and I don't remember any of the conversations we had. I remember a couple of the particular stories that we studied. I remember drawing. I remembered how fun that was to spend that time with my dad and have his undivided attention like that. I don't remember the points of the stories. I don't remember the morals. I don't remember the lessons that I learned on the couch all those years ago. But there was a core memory that was being embedded deep down in my spirit during that time. There was something that God and my father were instilling in me. And it was this lesson that in my family, we believe the Bible is important. 
My father was teaching me by example and with his time that the stories in the Bible can help us figure out how to relate to God and know who God is and how to follow God. And throughout the history of our faith, it's been really important, it's been crucial for us to find ways to communicate that message to the next generation. I mean, this is the challenge that every parent is looking at as they try to communicate faith is passing that down to our kids in a way that matters. In fact, some of you remember that shortly after receiving the Ten Commandments, Moses spoke to the Israelites and was telling them about all of the commands and instructions that God was passing on to them. And one of the things Moses included was instruction on how to pass this to your children. Here's what Moses said, Deuteronomy chapter 6. He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And then these commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Listen to what he says. He says, impress them on your children. Talk about God's commands, about God's instructions. Talk about God. When you sit at home and when you walk along the road, he said, talk about God's instructions when you lie down and when you get up. And Moses is prescribing this familial religious instruction that's just like part of the environment at home. Like he's, he's trying to prescribe religious instruction that's frequent and informal. And the idea was about making talking about God's law something that was a regular part of family life and everyday conversation. And I still believe parents are uniquely positioned, positioned better than anyone else to be able to teach their children about God's commands and God's expectations, but we are in this together. In fact, one of the ways that faith grows, one of the ways faith grows is when we share with each other, when we recount together the history of God's interaction with humanity, when we listen to the stories of how God has engaged with humans in the past, it helps us to be able to trust God's ability and desire to engage with us in the future. And so for a long time, the church, the gathered people of God, we have partnered with parents. I don't just mean this congregation. I mean the church, big church, like historic, the, the church. We've partnered with parents to find ways to tell God's story to children in a way that kids can understand. In fact, I know many of you, many of you have some memories of growing up in environments where there were other adults that were helping you come to knowledge of God's big story. It's not everybody's experience. And I know, not, you know, some of you, this is a brand new experience for you. But some of you, some of you grew up in a church setting, an environment where you had, you had sweet folks that were trying to lead children's Bible hour and Sunday school and vacation Bible school and children's ministry. And you look back and you know that that helped to build a foundation for you and your knowledge about God. Well, here at Heritage right now, we're in the middle of a series of messages where we're taking a next step with that childhood foundation. Our series right now is called Flannel Graph 
favorites. And in this series, what we're doing is we're going back and looking at some of the Old Testament stories, some of the famous Old Testament stories that you may have learned as a child. In fact, we've called it flannel graph favorites because this thing right here, this felt covered board with all of these little figurine people that you can stick to it and move around. This flannel graph is a visual aid tool that teachers in Sunday school and VBS have used for decades to try to bring to life the stories of God's epic story. But, and we've talked about this a couple of times already this series, the Bible was not written for children, right? The Bible was not written for flannel graph. I mean, there, there are some Bibles that were written for children. This is the Jesus Storybook Bible. This one is specifically designed for kids. And I'll tell you, it's got a whole lot less words in it than this big one does, right? Because the Bible was not written for kids. There are portions of the scripture that are not kid-friendly enough to put up on the flannel graph. It's the kind of stuff that we don't want to explain to our kids quite yet. But the reason that we've created this summer series, the reason we're talking about it here in this room this summer is because it's really vital. It's really important for grown-ups to take another look at these old stories. It's really important for grown-ups to go back and re-examine some of these ancient stories and look at the parts that maybe we skipped over with the kids. And what we're discovering together, what we're finding is that there's usually more to the story than what we taught to the children. And so here we are, it's Father's Day. And on Father's Day, we are reconsidering the story of a man named Abram or Abraham who is considered the father of the faith for over 50% of the religious people in the world. Jews and Muslims and Christians alike revere Abraham as somebody who is a critical figure in our faith story. Here we are, last week we were in Genesis chapters 10 and 11, and now we're making a switch from that prehistoric, prehistory writings in those first few chapters. We're making a switch in chapter 12 to the story of of Abram and his wife Sarai or Sarah. They later had their names changed, so I'm going to call them Abraham and Sarah this whole sermon. But in chapter 12, we're near the beginning of the Bible. We're still near the front of the story. And what we find out is that Abraham and Sarah received a special, unique call from God. God called Abraham and invited Abraham to leave the land where he grew up, to leave the land where his father and his family had raised him and to travel west. And God promised to establish Abraham as the patriarch, the leader, the father of this great nation of people and to give his descendants a land that they could call their own. And so Abraham... Abraham trusted God, followed God's instructions, started heading west, took some of his household, took his household and some of his nephew and other family members with him, and they started traveling all this way, going in going to places where they couldn't they couldn't imagine what was next. And they were trusting God's promises even though they didn't know how things were going to work out. In fact, that was kind of Abraham's big story, was constantly having to trust God's promises even though he didn't know how they would be fulfilled. And it, most, it, it came to light most evidently in the example of Abraham's lack of descendants. 
because God had made him this big promise. Like you're going to be the beginning of a family tree full of people. And Abraham gets to be a pretty old man and he doesn't have kids yet. In fact, he and Sarah, they'd been on social security for quite some time. And they, and they hadn't had any children. And their infertility journey ends up being one of the big areas where God intervenes. I mean, it's an incredible story. In fact, if you were to open up to this story in the Jesus Storybook Bible, <clears throat> excuse me, you could turn to the beginning of this story here, and it would talk about, I should have marked this page, it would talk about a son of laughter. That's the translation that we give for the name Isaac, which would eventually be Abraham and Sarah's son. And if you read through this story, there's about six or eight pages that talk about Abraham and Sarah and their desire to fulfill God's vision for them, to have a family, talks about their difficulty having a family and believing that God was going to be able to make that happen and how challenging that would be and how old they were. And then eventually you get to a page, and I hope you can see this on the camera maybe, where they have baby Isaac. Covers about nine chapters in about five or six pages of this Jesus storybook Bible. But there's a problem there. And the problem is that there's some deleted scenes there's some scenes in this story that just didn't make it in to the children's version. Some scenes in these chapters that are really important for us to go back and look at because the deleted scenes tell the story of another character, a young woman named Hagar, and Hagar's story is a story worth telling. If you got a Bible with you, I'd be thrilled for you to join me in Genesis chapter 16. We're gonna put these verses, some verses up here on the screen in a few moments. But by the time we get to Genesis chapter 16, four chapters into the Abraham story, 10 years have already passed since Abraham first trusted God and started moving west. What that means is that by chapter 16, Abraham is 85 years old and his wife Sarah is 75 years old and they still don't have any of these promised children. Now that might have been a painful experience for any couple who was dreaming of becoming parents, but this is especially confusing for Abraham and Sarah who are banking on God's promise. I mean, they had uprooted their entire lives following God's promise that he was going to build their family. And so Sarah, in an effort to speed things along, comes up with a plan. Here's Abraham and his wife Sarah, but Sarah has somebody else living in the house with them. She has an Egyptian slave woman named Hagar. Hagar lives with them, serves them, works for them. We don't know the origin story of how Hagar came to live in their home, but Sarah has an idea that if Abraham was to take Hagar as a second wife, and then if Hagar was to get pregnant, then Hagar's child would actually be 
Sarah's child because of the slave-master relationship between the two of them. And this is exactly what happens. This is Sarah's idea. She suggests this to Abraham. Hagar gets pregnant, but the text says that when she discovered she was pregnant, she suddenly began to despise Sarah. We don't know all the details of that, but we know that Sarah and Hagar stopped getting along, and Sarah went to Abraham to complain about his new wife. Abraham said to his first wife, Sarah, she's your slave. Do whatever you think is best. And so Sarah started mistreating Hagar. She made her life more difficult, and it got so bad that eventually Hagar made the decision to run away, to leave out on her own in the middle of her pregnancy, out in the desert with no way to fend for herself. And I got to tell you, this is a problematic story, right? I mean, a modern reader paying attention to the details in this story, there's all kinds of red flags that go up. If there's not, you weren't paying very close attention because it ought to be pretty obvious at this point why this is not the part of the story we tell to the kids, right? There's all sorts of problems here, all sorts of drama. I mean, we're talking about a time in history when slavery and polygamy were just everyday things, even though, even though they sound primitive and horrific to us. And here's poor Hagar. Nobody knows the story of how she ended up in Abraham and Sarah's home, but we know that she was robbed of her freedom. She was robbed of her agency in the decision to become Abraham's wife. She was robbed of her virginity by the man that we hold up as the father of our faith and a model for faithfulness. And so there's some wrestling that has to go on. There's some negotiating that has to go on with this story in order for us to make it make sense to our modern sensibilities. But one of the guiding principles we keep coming back to in this series, one of the things I keep asking us to remember as we engage these old stories is that we are better off if we try to focus our attention to what God is doing in the these stories rather than what the people are doing in these stories. As we read through all of the scriptures, as we read through all of this Old Testament and these these ancient tales, we're going to consistently find that everybody God engages, everybody God works with, everybody God speaks to, everybody God provides for, every one of them is imperfect, right? There are no perfect people in these stories. Abraham's not perfect. Sarah's not perfect. Hagar's not perfect. No perfect people in these stories. In fact, some of the most recognizable names in the entire Bible, some of the heroes of the faith have a lot of embarrassing secrets in their past and a lot of skeletons in their closet. This is consistent. But if we pay attention to what God is doing in these stories, we begin to formulate a better idea of why these stories are important for us to pass down. Read with me, would you, in Genesis chapter 16, beginning in verse 7. After Hagar has run away from Abraham, And Sarah, the story says, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert, and it was the spring that's beside the road to Shur. And the angel said, the angel of the Lord said, Hagar, 
slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. And then the angel of the Lord told her, go back. Go back to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. This is the only time this promise is made to a female, to a woman in the story of God, which is so significant, so meaningful for us. The angel of the Lord makes Hagar this promise and also said to her in verse 11, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, which means God listens or God hears. For the Lord has heard of your misery And your son will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Now that part sounds terrifying to me, but Hagar, Hagar skips right past that because she's overwhelmed by the experience of connection that she's just had. She's overwhelmed by the epiphany, the theophany, the experience of God's revelation to her that she has just had. And this is what Hagar says in verse 13. It says, Hagar gave this name to the Lord. Hagar gave God a name, a name by which she would from then on recognize God. You are the God who sees me, she said. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. And then this chapter concludes. The chapter concludes with Hagar going back to Abraham and Sarah, living in their home again. And then she gives birth to a son. And Abraham gives that baby the name Ishmael. God listens. It's the name that the angel of the Lord had told Hagar to give to the baby, but it's significant that Abraham gives the name to the baby because in these next few chapters, it becomes very clear that Abraham loves this child. Abraham accepts this child. Abraham is prepared to accept this child as the answer to God's promise that had been made. In fact, in chapter 17, God reiterates that promise that Abraham's going to have another son through Sarah. And Abraham pleads with God and said, couldn't Ishmael just be the child of your blessing? Couldn't Ishmael be the fulfillment of your promise? And God God agrees to continue to bless Ishmael and to make him prosper too. But God's plan involves a son for Sarah, a son for Sarah and Abraham, and God's plan is not going to be derailed, even though Abraham and Sarah were tempted to give up. Abraham and Sarah decided that they weren't sure they could trust the process. They weren't sure they could trust the promise that God had made. They couldn't imagine becoming parents in the ninth and tenth decades of their life, and so they took matters into their own hands. They tried to shortcut their way into God's blessing by bringing Hagar and Ishmael into the mix. It's hard to be patient waiting for God. 
But Abraham and Sarah's impatience led to more difficulty, led to more heartbreak because the Hagar story wasn't quite over. In fact, if you continue reading in Genesis, you come to Genesis chapter 20. And by this time in Genesis chapter 20, God's promise to Abraham and Sarah gets fulfilled. And this new baby boy is born, baby Isaac. And so baby Isaac, pay no attention to the magic that I'm doing over here. And 14-year-old Ishmael, I don't know if you can see, but Ishmael's got a really impressive beard for 14 years old. He's doing well. Ishmael's 14 years old by this time, and here comes baby Isaac. And Ishmael's growing up in this complicated, convoluted, messy family situation. Things can be tense at times. But on one particular day, the tension boils over. In fact, it's, it's the day that Abraham throws a party. Abraham throws a feast for baby Isaac because baby Isaac has reached the age where he can be weaned and start eating solid food. And, and surely that's an emotional day for Sarah already. But in the midst of that difficult day, Sarah sees Ishmael, this other kid, laughing at her baby about something. It's unclear what was going on, whether he, whether he was mocking the child or just laughing at something that the child did. Isaac's name means laughter. But Sarah takes it very personally, and she demands that Abraham do something to get rid of that slave woman and her son. And Abraham's distraught. He's torn. He doesn't know what to do, doesn't know what he should do. He loves this child. He's married to this woman. He doesn't know what he's supposed to do until God speaks to him directly and says, you know, it's going to be okay. If you send Hagar and Ishmael away, I'll take care of them personally. I'll make sure that they're provided for. And that's what happened. Abraham sends Hagar and her very hairy son away into the desert, carrying what provisions they could carry on their own, which wasn't very much. And those provisions didn't last them very long. And eventually, eventually, they started running out of strength. They were suffering. They were struggling. Ishmael looked like he was nearing the end of his life. Hagar couldn't bear to watch, so she leaves him underneath the shade of a tree and goes off some distance, and she's just grieving. And then that angel of the Lord shows up again. That angel of the Lord shows up and says, the Lord has heard the cry of your son. God has listened to the plea of the one whose name means God listens. God has paid attention. God has seen and God has promised to bless Ishmael and his descendants too. You can probably see why we don't tell this story to the kids, right? I mean, you can imagine this one's, this one's got a lot of struggle in it. This one's got a lot of drama. This one's got a lot of mistreatment. This is soap opera level stuff here. 
I mean, the relationship between Sarah and Hagar, the relationship between Hagar and Abraham, the relationship between Sarah and Ishmael, all of these relationships are complicated. A lot of drama. And so you can understand why this isn't one that makes the cut into the Jesus storybook Bible. But I hope you can also start to see why this is an important story for us to learn. In order to see that, you have to remember that these stories are telling us something about the character of God. And what we're learning in this story is that God is not exclusively committed to Abraham and Sarah's descendants. That God is committed to all of God's creatures. What we're learning in this story is that God is concerned for all of God's creation. In fact, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, what we're going to continue to find is that God is consistently revealed this way. There are moments along the timeline when God's people feel destitute, hopeless, worthless, alone, abandoned, afraid, terrified, and they reach out to God and every time God listens, God hears, God notices. There's a moment a few centuries after this story when all of Abraham's descendants, have, they find themselves enslaved in Egypt, a big group of people, but they're living in oppression, enslaved in Egypt. And when God comes to rescue them, the first thing that God's voice says is, I have heard the cries of my people in Egypt. I have listened. I've paid attention Later on, there's story after story after story. There's a woman named Hannah. She's desperate, desperate to be able to have a child that she could dedicate to the service of the Lord. And when she cries out to God, people think she's crazy, but God listens and pays attention and answers her need. There's a woman in a village called Zarephath. It's another single lady. You're noticing a theme here. Noticing a theme about some of the people who are on the fringe of society in that day and age. People who have nobody to fight for them or plead their case. There's this widow. She's got a son and they're starving. There's a famine in the land. She doesn't know how she's going to provide for her kid. She's afraid that she's down to their very last meal and she's crying out to God. And God listens and provides and make sure that she doesn't run out of food until she can get some more after the famine is concluded. There's a moment when a, a, a prophet named Jonah finds himself in an ugly situation that he got himself into. And guess what he does? He cries out to the Lord in his desperation, in his hopelessness, from the depths, he cries out to the Lord, and you know what happens, right? God listens and God hears. And that story just keeps being retold one way or another in one life and another life. That story, that theme keeps coming up. And then eventually Jesus comes and reveals the most vivid, accurate depiction of what God is like for us to be able to see it up close and personal. And you know what Jesus does time and time again? He walks through town, walks through villages, walks among people, and he notices the people that feel like they're alone. 
He notices the people that are on the margins. He notices the people who are afraid. He walks through one particular town and people are fawning over him and clamoring to be able to see him. And amidst of all of the mess and the chaos, he looks up in this tree and he sees this guy, this short little man, it says, a wee little man if you grew up in Bible class, right? Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, the guy that everybody in town hated. The guy that everybody in town wished would just go away. And he says, Zacchaeus, I know nobody here wants to hang out with you, but I'm coming to your house. Jesus walking through all these places and, and he notices, he hears, he sees, he's paying attention to the people who are on the margins. Jesus, time and time again, this is how he engages with women in that society. This is how he engages with the ill, the sick, the lame, the lepers in that society, the people that everybody else felt like it's hopeless. I can't help them. It's dangerous to be around them. Jesus constantly is moving closer. And when they feel like they're abandoned, when and they feel like they're without hope, Jesus is paying attention. This is how Jesus engages the children in that society. The children who were more of a burden until they were old enough to be able to contribute in some really meaningful way. Jesus is constantly, when the adults are saying, get these children out of the way so Jesus can do important work, Jesus is saying, let the children come here. Because Jesus is listening. Jesus is paying attention. Jesus, who's depicting for us exactly what we can expect from the character of God in spirit and in the flesh, in history and in the future, Jesus is telling us that God is a God who pays attention, that God is a God who listens, that God is a God who hears. And I just wonder... I just wonder as you reflect on your own story, if you can think of a time when God heard you. I just wonder, as you think back on your own experience and your own history, I wonder if you can remember some moments along the journey in your own life where you thought the situation was hopeless. If you can remember some moments where you felt like your circumstances were doomed. I wonder if you can remember some moments in your own story where you felt destitute, lonely, terrified. I wonder, I wonder as you reflect on your own story, if there was ever a moment when you think, you know, nobody else heard me, but God heard me. Nobody else saw me, but God saw me. One of the things that fascinates me as I study the scripture is asking, how did, all, how did we get all of the information from the moments when somebody was by themselves? You know, I think about how do we know the content of Jesus's prayer in the garden of Gethsemane? He's by himself. Did he tell that to somebody later on? Maybe that's how it went. But I just wonder, how could we possibly know about the conversation that Hagar had with the angel of the Lord. In chapter 16, she's pregnant, she's alone, she's out there in the desert, and the angel of the Lord appears to her, and we have record of their entire conversation. How could we possibly know that? Maybe God told that to somebody else supernaturally later, but I think what's more likely is that Hagar told somebody. I think what's more likely is that Hagar, for the rest of her life, 
told the story about what it was like to be seen when nobody else could see her. I think it's more likely to think that Hagar spent the rest of her life telling the story to anybody who would listen about what it was like when she was alone and afraid and hopeless and God showed up. And I want to tell you that that's that's how faith grows. Faith grows when people who have had an experience with God tell their story. Faith grows when someone who has been in that situation where they felt hopeless and suddenly there was a peace that could only come from God, suddenly that peace showed up. That's how faith grows. And so here we are as a community of faith and we talk about teaching these stories to our children and passing the faith on to the next generation. Impress these commands and these instructions on your children. Talk about them when you walk along the road and when you sit at home and when you lie down and when you get up. Moses said, tell these stories to your children. And it's so valuable, so critical, so important that we continue to tell the stories that are recorded in this library of books. But... Let's not stop there because the story is still being written. The story is still being told. And you and I have some stories of moments in our life where God was the only way out. You and I have some stories of moments in our life when we felt silenced and God heard us anyway. You and I have some stories in our lives of times when we were so lonely that we weren't sure that anybody cared and then there was God. You and I have some stories, some stories that could help build the faith of each other and our children and anybody who will listen, if we'll just tell the story.